Artemis endeavors to get more women and girls in the field and on the water. To support women as leaders in the conservation movement. To ensure the vitality of our lands, waters, and wildlife. Artemis endeavors to change the face of conservation. Welcome to the Artemis Podcast. As sportswomen and conservationists, we do more than hunt and fish. The complete sportswoman can skin a deer, land a burly trout, navigate in the wild, and she knows her game commissioners and politicians, knows wildlife laws, defends all wildlife, advocates on their behalf, and teaches others these skills. Artemis embodies the definition of the complete sportswoman and sees it as our duty to use our platform to promote and teach this philosophy. Do you have or want these skills in this network? Visit artemis.nwf.org and join us today. And thank you for protecting our wild world. Hey everyone, welcome to the Artemis Podcast. I am your host, Marsha Brownlee, and we are joined today by co-host Becca Aceto. Hi, Becca. Hi, Marsha. I feel like we haven't talked in a long time. It does feel like a while. And of course, I need an update on both, well, all you, Hatch, and your property. Um, okay, I'll do like the 10 second. Um, I am Grace. I'm getting ready to head out of Salmon for the long weekend to head into the mountains where my boyfriend works as a wilderness ranger where it's 20 degrees cooler. Nice. I'm excited. Hatch is wonderful. He sleeps all day because it's so hot in the house and the property is dry. Oh my gosh, I'm irrigating my backyard because I'm growing some seed where there's dirt patches, but um, we have almost two acres and most of it is brown already. Yeah. Yeah. The last, I don't, I think it's been the same in Idaho, but the last week has just been a scorcher. Everything went from green to brown so quick. I went to the store last night to grab a couple of things for the weekend and their whole popsicle section was wiped clean. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> popsicles sound really good. I'll have to go see what the status is with our store. <laughs> nice. Uh, we are joined today on the podcast by Nova Simpson from the Nevada Department of Transportation. Hi, Nova. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm so Glad excited to, to talk with you. Yeah, thanks for being here. How's Nevada today? Uh, yeah, it's kind of the same thing. We're dealing with a, a heat wave this week and, um, you know, we just kind of had an erratic season this year, which, which isn't totally uncommon for Nevada. It's the joke is, you know, if you don't like the weather, wait a day or even a couple hours. So, um, but yeah, this, this is definitely a hot one for us. I imagine if we were to have a hot contest, you would win. <laughs> How hot is it in Nevada today? <laughs> I actually the Pacific uh, West I think Northwest is, is beating us all so they're hitting uh, some pretty records so um, yeah it'd be interesting to see where they're at today yeah, for sure crazy um, well let's just dive right in tell us a little bit about who you are yeah so I work for the Nevada Department of Transportation and I'm biological supervisor for the northern half of the state uh, and I'm also a large mammal mitigation specialist for the entire state so Kind of what that entails as a biological supervisor is, is kind of what that sounds like. Um, supervise the staff in northern Nevada, any interns we have, all that kind of administrative duty. But the primary thing we deal with is kind of environmental compliance of plants and animals. So we'll review projects, anything from new projects to improvements, um, as well as maintenance activities. 
and looked at those for um, conflicts with federal and state protected species. And then we'll also look at anything else that has a law related to plants and animals such as noxious weeds. Um, and then from the large mammal mitigation side of things, uh, I try to focus on conflicts with the large mammals. And my role there is more of a planning role where I review and provide recommendations um, on areas that we have problems with. Um, and then also work as a liaison on with partnering agencies and neighboring states um, and deal with a lot of the research that we have within the state that kind of surrounds that topic. So fascinating. And just hearing you talk about your work reminds me of like my first job in college. It was an internship at the Michigan Department of Transportation where I worked with their archaeologist to take a close look at um, road projects and, and permit requests to see if it overlapped with any archaeologically important sites or areas. Um, so is that, I mean, you, you mentioned planning um, and being a part of planning, particularly when it comes to big um, game projects. Uh, but does, is that a part of it too, where you look at road construction that's happening in Nevada um, and assess how it's going to impact game in the area? Yeah, absolutely. So especially when we're start to have those projects where they're going through virgin lands, you know, where we haven't touched and haven't fragmented that habitat yet, we want to make sure that we take that opportunity to reduce our impact up front. And then when we have bigger roadway projects that have a fairly large budget, we also try to look at improvements that we can incorporate at that time. Because um, it makes sense to kind of piggyback projects when we're, we have that um, opportunity. So interesting. I have a million questions, but I feel like I'm getting ahead of myself. And so I want us to back up a little bit. Uh, because one of the things that I that struck my notice when I was reading through some um, information that about you and, and that you've produced, it talks about road ecology. And so I'm just curious if you could expand a little bit on what road ecology is. Sure, yeah, road ecology is a science in itself. There's a lot of people out there now that are focused strictly on road ecology. But in its simplest form, I like to define it as the interaction of animals and roadways. And it looks at how animals behave, how they move, how they're prevented from movement, potential avoidance, and mortality. So there's a lot of different components to it. Um, and but like I said, the simplest uh, definition is that interaction of the wildlife and roads. Um, let's dig in more specifically and talk about animal vehicle collisions, because I imagine when we're talking about road ecology and how roads interact with wildlife, that's a huge part of it. Um, can you delve into that for us? What are, what are some statistics and important numbers and what's the, what's the landscape look like? Yeah, absolutely. So the Department of Transportation, our main goal really is to, to build a safe and efficient highway system. So it comes down to that animal vehicle collision really is that uh, defining feature for us um, when it comes to the road ecology factor. Whereas if you're working for, say, the Department of Wildlife, it might be more of the animal movements or barriers that becomes that more important factor for them. So we're always looking at where are we having these hot spots, where are we having these problems where we're interacting with the animals that creates kind of a safety component uh, for the motorist. Um, so, you know, looking at national averages, we spend about $8 billion. That's 
billion with a B on infrastructure damage, human injuries and fatalities and loss of life. And that's every year. So you can imagine if we just took a small uh, percentage of that and started to integrate that into infrastructure improvements and mitigation, you know, we slowly would start to see that decrease. Um, we see about an average of 200 human fatalities, over 26,000 injuries in, for humans. Um, but then diving into the wildlife side, there's estimated from one to million large animals killed every year. And that's just large animals. That doesn't include the small animals that typically don't get right. counted in their carcass data. So it's a pretty big problem. Um, you know, obviously some areas are going to be more problematic than others. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's definitely a problem for all states. It's, it's so, I mean, everybody pretty much has a story about uh, oh, their own wildlife collision. Um. No, no, I mean, it, it's definitely something that I think we all either have experienced or we know somebody who's experienced. And, um, for, you know, I did a, some, I did my graduate research working on the very first crossings that were put in Nevada. And I had to go and, and collect carcass data and seeing what was happening on the side of the road was really disheartening. And knowing some of the injuries that happened in those areas, you know, I, I, I want to protect not just the people I don't know, but the people that I do know, mm -hmm. um, as myself and my family. So it is really an important topic that I think some of us kind of take for granted or don't think too much about. Um, and it really does have an easy answer. There's a lot of mitigation out there that can reduce these collisions up to 80-90%. Um, some have even been documented almost 100%, you know, looking at the 97 percentile. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of potential out there. Um, we just have to make the effort to do it. Mm -hmm. And what are some other reasons for wildlife health, um, aside from animal vehicle collisions, that that mitigation is necessary or important? Yeah, absolutely. So when you look at species that, um, let's say they're on the brink of extinction, uh, there are 21 here in just the U.S. that are threatened or endangered and their primary um, cause of mortality is wildlife vehicle collisions. Oh, interesting. And so, yeah, there, it, that is an interesting fact. I always found that um, fascinating. So one that kind of really jumps out is the Florida panther, um, the uh, kind of a charismatic species, and, and their highest rate of mortality is caused by road vehicle collision. So that's obviously one that um, could be helped if we could reduce that. So that's an obvious issue for wildlife health. Um, but ultimately, the goal for mitigation is to reduce this conflict overall. And so when looking at roads, roads, in an essence, they create habitat fragmentation. And when you create fragmentation, you're decreasing habitat connectivity. So if we're able to restore that connectivity, we're able to restore access to resources that may be important for their health as a population. Uh, it helps increase the genetic diversity. Um, and then it can also help restore ecological di diversity 
Um, there's been actually a lot of studies that have found that the best way to combat loss of diversity as a landscape whole is to actually keep landscapes connected um, because each of these species plays an important role in that habitat and in that, that ecosystem. So um, yeah, we just really need to reduce fragmentation and, and increase that connectivity. Is there an example of a, a population of wildlife in Nevada that this is impacting particularly? So we actually had an area kind of in northeastern Nevada, and um, I'm going to do a little plug for our documentary that we released a couple of years ago. It's called it. Reconnecting Wild, <laughs> and we released it, gosh, I think it was 2019. And um, it's just a short 12-minute documentary, but uh, it really is a crown jewel for us. We put a lot of time and energy into it. But that one tells the story of a landscape scale project that we, we worked on for over 10 years. And it took multiple projects to complete. It helped restore, at least minimize, the impact of the roadways for a historic migration of mule deer that travel over Interstate 80 and US 93. Um, twice a year for to reach their summer or winter ranges. And so by finishing this project, we you know, ultimately reduced that conflict for both the drivers that were on the roadway, as well as the deer. And our deer in Nevada are struggling um, for a variety of reasons, but this at least reduces that one risk to them. There's obviously other things going on, but it at least removes that one element to help them and help that population and help them access the resources that they need. That was a really good film. So yes. I'm just gonna give you an added plug that anybody listening to this who hasn't seen it yet, I would highly recommend it. It was really well done. So well done. I remember it, it, it was just very powerful. Mm -hmm. yeah. Thank you. Um, I, I do like to always kind of warn people, it kind of starts out a little tough, but it gets yeah. a lot better really quick. Yep. Um, um, where do you get your data? Is that an interagency collaboration or um, your data about, about wildlife crossings? Yeah, so to look at these areas and kind of do the early planning, we do a lot of collaboration with the Department of Wildlife. So we utilize a variety of data. We'll use our own crash and carcass data, which is collected through actual crash records, say that's reported through uh, Highway Patrol or your local police department. And then we'll also use the carcass data, which is if our maintenance um, comes across a carcass, they'll record that and that gets put in that database. So we have those two databases that we use at uh, the DOT level. And then the Department of Wildlife, they're in charge of the wildlife component. And so they'll help us with migration corridors or if they have collar data, which is you know, GPS collars that they'll put out on animals then they'll help us with that. And they do a lot of the modeling um, with that kind of information. So we'll put it all together and kind of see how it lines up. And, and that's really helped us kind of pinpoint areas of interest. We've also done some um, extensive statewide prioritization based off some of those crash records that I mentioned before. That prioritization has helped us create the argument um, for certain areas showing that it's actually you know showing up in a prioritization model um, versus just kind of randomly picking areas that you know have some deer hits because 
we have animal hits along pretty much all of the roadways in Nevada. And you'll probably see that in almost all, every single state. You know, you're going to have animal hits along everything, but you really kind of have to pick your battles. You have to pick the areas that are of the highest priority. And by having that prioritization, it really does let us focus our efforts because we are limited on funding. So we definitely want to be able to utilize the taxpayers' dollars to the maximum uh, benefit. Do they, this is a random <laughs> question, totally random question. Do, when the people are out recording the carcasses, do they do that for animals of all size? They typically do the larger species that create a safety element on the roadway. And so really kind of the size of a dog and larger. Um, I wish we had the time to do more right. because I think there's a lot of stuff going on that we don't know about um, that might show up as, as you know, conservation concerns. Ideally, we'd like to see some other agencies get involved and um, we've been having discussions with various partners about that and how we can create an app a smartphone app mm -hmm. that everybody can use and start to document, let's say, species that they're interested in. But unfortunately, our, our staff are just really limited on their time, so they really do focus on the things that create that safety component. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So, Nova, I a couple weeks ago, I was in a meeting with a gal that works for the Mule Deer Foundation. She sort of splits her time between Idaho Fish and Game and the Mule Deer Foundation, and she was saying that they are coming out with an app for motorists to record um, either roadkill or collisions. I can't remember which one, I think maybe both. And they're gonna start with larger species. I don't, I don't think they're gonna be documenting, um, you know, like smaller avian or reptile, amphibian, et cetera. But um, have you heard of that coming out of Idaho at all? You know, there's actually quite a few different states that have done kind of these citizen science programs. I know Washington has a really great one. Um, I, I'm not familiar with the Idaho one, but um, like I said, I, I know that there's several states that have done it. Um, we've considered that ourselves and, and had discussions, um, but unfortunately, Nevada, you know, there's some pros and cons for us here. We have some of the highest speed limits in the U.S. on some of our very long barren roadways, and there's a lot of concern with having citizens pulling off the side of the roadway um, when it's not an emergency and just for their own safety. So we haven't gone down that road yet, um, but it is something we've talked about and, and that's kind of why we're going down the road of opening up to other agencies. Like, can we get kind of this agency-wide app for federal and state agencies? And we think that would be a good first start to really opening up our databases and getting a better picture of what's really going on. So I think when we talk about wildlife crossings, I know the first thing that comes into my mind is those beautiful animal overpasses um, where the animals can cross. Uh, but that's just one example. What are some examples of other both large scale and small scale modifications for wildlife? Yeah, so, you know, ultimately, I think we all want those big, beautiful structures. Um, they're just inspiring. And, and when you see them, they really do just, just kind of make you smile, right? But um, you know, we have the underpasses as well, and they, those can come in a variety of shapes and sizes, anywhere from kind of a, a box culvert, which is like a big concrete box, to an open bridge where you allow animals to kind of move underneath the highway. Um, 
And we also do a lot of multi-use structures now. So let's say we have a bridge on top um, and then we allow hydraulic um, activity as well as animal movement underneath. And so we'll design it specifically for that. Um, and then we also have very large fencing projects that can cost quite a bit of money. But then if you go to the small side, you can also have smaller fencing projects that could be very minimal that can make a big difference. Um, and then there's a ton of various small uh, modifications you can make. So modifying existing structures. We have a great example of a modification in Washoe Valley, which is kind of this northeastern, I'm sorry, northwestern corner of Nevada, just outside of Reno. And it's where we have an existing bridge and we had some hydraulic improvements that needed to be done to stabilize the slope. And they were putting in a bunch of uh, big rock and we knew we had mule deer that were already using this bridge area. So what we did is we just made the slopes a little bit steeper, added the rock and pushed it back. And we allowed for a small path underneath that bridge and off of the main road surface. So it was still a multi-use for lack of better terms and allowed for the deer to still move without pushing them up and over onto the interstate. And it actually worked really, really well. And it cost us really nothing to add that small modification into our plan. So you can do everything from you know big structures and fencing projects to easy little modifications, such as just changing your slope and um, some of those you know dynamics to allow for movement still. So um, yeah, there, there's a lot of options out there. That, it, it sounds just kind of like you included an animal sidewalk along the side of the road. Is that kind of what it was? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a great way to, to put it. And I might steal that in future talks and presentations. <laughs> it's um, all yours. Yeah, yeah, an animal sidewalk. That's exactly what we did. And it, it just worked really well. So, um, you know, and I know that there's been a lot more fancy, we'll call the animal sidewalks <laughs> with other products. <laughs> Um, in other states. And so, yeah, it, it, it can be, like I said, anything from those really big structures to those, those small little modifications that can make a big difference and reducing um, those, those conflicts and collisions. So I have another sort of random question because I know this isn't quite as applicable because um, birds fly, but <laughs> are there modification <laughs> projects or um, road designs that can minimize collisions with birds. I I hit a owl um, during antelope hunting season a couple of years ago, and that was traumatic for me because they're such beautiful birds. But obviously, I mean, there's not much you can do there um, for animal sidewalks with owls. But I'm curious if there's right. something I'm not thinking about. You know, I am not too aware of things for avian species. Um, one thing we have done in Nevada is where we do have fencing projects. We'll add some reflectors on those top areas of the fence to provide a visual for the birds to see the fence so that they're not flying into the fence. So that's been done in areas where we have sage grouse, which is a species of concern. So we don't want them flying into the fence and injuring themselves. So that gets them up a little bit higher. So I guess I, I imagine that if there is a species of bird that is maybe a low flying bird and, and you really want to get them up and over, you could do something to that effect to kind of push them up higher into the air. 
but yeah, unfortunately, owls um, are are really prone to being hit. Um, it's it's just really sad. We see that here a lot as well. And and my my uh, assumption on that is, you know, they they go after a lot of the the rodents or roadkill that's on on the side of the road, and they're just not quite quick enough to get out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they've got that that hunter focus where they're not seeing anything else and just go straight for right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. What are, what are some barriers to getting these modifications in place? Because it seems obviously it's, it, it works for everybody, right? It works for people. It saves us money. It's what's best for wildlife. Um, what are the barriers? So there's, there's quite a few barriers, but the number one barrier is ultimately funding. Um, these kinds of projects don't have designated funding, at least not at this point in time. And that's for most states. Um, I know some states that are slowly changing that. A great example is Oregon. They just recently did a plate, like a, a license plate to help raise money for this kind of thing. So that's really great. I'm rooting for them that that'll work out. Um, but we really just don't have a, a set um, budget for, you know, crossings or mitigation. And so we have to kind of compete with other priorities for the department. Obviously, the department has a very set budget every year. And the priorities for safety um, really just, just uh, overshadow animal vehicle collisions in most cases. So a great, great um, kind of basic stat that I use in Nevada, because you know, people say, well, it is an easy answer. Why aren't we doing more? Well, Nevada has been doing a lot. And I think we can be super proud of what we've done, especially given the stat I'm about ready to say. So we have only 2% of our crashes in Nevada are related to animal vehicle collisions. That means 98% of crashes are not related to that. So you can imagine the priorities that are above yeah. animal vehicle collisions. And so it's hard to make the argument to take funding from other safety components to put it towards these kinds of projects when you have 98% of other crashes happening for other reasons. So you just really have to understand how states have to prioritize their budgets. So that's really, you know, a big thing. And so, you know, I think Nevada has been super lucky that we've had supportive um, management and we've been able to be creative and how we've been able to get budget and partnering. Um, so it's just really been a, a blessing that we've been able to do this. So um, I'm just very fortunate to, to work for NDOT and, and, that they've been this supportive. Now there are some areas within our state that that doesn't line up for. If we were to actually remove the large urban areas, um, those crashes, then that number goes way up. It's, I think it starts at 15% and depending on the county, it goes up to almost 50% are animal vehicle related. So it's more of a rural issue. So, you know, if you're dealing with a state that's highly urbanized, your numbers may be very low as well. But if you're dealing with a state that's highly rural, you may have super high numbers that are animal vehicle collisions. So every state's going to vary, obviously. Um, one of the other barriers that we run into is land ownership. You know, we don't want to restrict 
uh, movement of animals within private property. Um, and we also don't want to build a large structure that's bordered by private property because we can't tell those owners what to do on their property. So we want to make sure that we're utilizing the taxpayer's money and in a way that's going to be um, successful for a long time down the road. And um, if we were to put these structures in an area that's surrounded by private property, you know, they could wall it off and make it ineffective. So those are some of the things that we really have to kind of look at when we're um, trying to put some of these projects at the table. Can you, I'm curious um, about that 2%. Do you know what that works out to numbers wise? Oh yeah, so we, we actually have done a generalized um, estimate and it runs between 19 to 21 million a year for Nevada. So it's it's not a small number by any means. It's it's definitely a big number. So you know I would love to get 19 to 21 million dollar budget to disclose or working at that. <laughs> but um, you know we just don't have that. Um, so yeah, it's it's just one of those things that uh, you know we're slowly working at. And Nevada can like I mentioned, you know that we've had an amazing a supportive um, team and, and management. And uh, we've really actually reduced um, or eliminated our biggest problem spots, which yeah. is great. So now, now we can slowly start to pick away at kind of those, those smaller areas, which is, which is awesome. Yeah, no, that's why part of the reason why I'm so excited to have this conversation with you is because Nevada's done a ton of work on this and a ton of really impressive work on it. Um, and it's, it's, I just think it speaks volume uh, volumes at all of the work that you have done um, and those numbers still being what they are. Just, it just highlights yeah. the problem. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I, I, I keep, people ask me how we've done it. And sometimes I question that myself. How did <laughs> we do it? Um, it's, it's, really it's a blur. You're too tired to talk about it. <laughs> ah, it's, yeah, it happened really fast and great. And yeah, there was a lot that happened in a short amount of time. And um, like I said, Nevada should feel honored and proud and blessed that we were all able to do this as a team. Um, and, you know, I hope we can continue down that pathway. Um, yeah, it's, it's just been a, a really fun thing to be a part of. Are there at all opportunities for funding outside of state agency funding? Um, I, I mean, I guess what I'm asking is, um, are there places that the general public can contribute um, to funding for wildlife crossings? Yeah. Outside of our so, taxes? Yeah, there's actually some of our projects have utilized some funding that was donated by sportsmen's groups. Uh, our very first project we partnered with the Department of Wildlife. Uh, they're one of our best partners out there. And they um, worked with a couple different sportsmen's groups. And I apologize, I'm not familiar with exactly who they were, um, but those sportsmen's groups put funding into um, some of the fencing that occurred on that project. So, you know, if, if there's projects out there that still need attention and you're involved in one of those groups, that's a way to kind of make some traction. Um, those states that are potentially looking at the license plates, like I mentioned Oregon earlier, you know, you could 
purchase a license plate and put that funding towards that. That's another way. So there's, there are some creative ways to get out there. Unfortunately, we don't have a, a account set up here in Nevada for somebody to do something like that. Maybe that's something I should do is set an account for donors. <laughs> but, right. but um, you know, those are, those are just a few ideas of how people could get involved and kind of put money towards it. I will mention one project that just really blows me away is down in California. Um, anybody that's worked on these kinds of projects is very familiar with it. It's the, um, oh gosh, mountain lion project down in LA. Mm -hmm. um, and they're trying to cross, I want to say it's like eight or 10 lanes of traffic, but it's primarily, if not entirely being um, privately raised funds. So they've been working on it for many years, raising funds, but they're getting close from my understanding. And it is, um, I want to say, you know, tens of millions of dollars. Um, I, I wish I knew formal details, but um, there are some projects that have been entirely funded by private donations. I just picture like a giant GoFundMe page for the next wildlife crossing. Send it our way. We'll push <laughs> it out. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think that's pretty much what it is down there. You yeah. know, and, and uh, like I said, it's, it's, it's an impressive project and, and um, they're getting close. So I really do wish them the best of luck. Hopefully they'll make it there here soon. That's very cool. Um, Becca, I'm going to pause and see if you have any questions or comments. Um, well, I had, it's like a, it's like a blend of a question and a comment, but um, I don't know if you guys a couple of weeks ago saw the New York, I think it was the New York Times article that came out about um, wildlife crossing and migration. Um, and they had some really cool film footage from underpasses and overpasses yes. of species using it. And I just yeah. always think about the one that was in Vermont, I think it was. It was an underpass created for a population of rattlesnakes. And there were like two island habitats that they wanted to connect to keep the species connected. In just in my mind, a wildlife underpass for amphibians or reptiles is just so cool to me. <laughs> yeah, that yeah, was they Go ahead, Nova. Oh, no, you go. I was going to say that was a super cool art article. And if I remember correctly, it was connected to this website that I was just really well done because you scroll in the videos of wildlife cams at these crossings. Um, they had a lot of footage uh, that was just yeah. fun to watch. We'll yeah, they did that. a really they did a really great job on that, and and you're right. They they took um, a bunch of video and tied it to some of the stories that they utilized. And we provided some video, um, a little clip from our Reconnecting Wild, and um, they interviewed some of the you know top researchers, and um, they just did a really f uh, fabulous job of bringing to light the topic and some of the issues. And um, I was really excited to see that because. We need that national level of attention for these things, and and we're starting to see more and more of that over the last you know five years uh, in particular. So it, it's exciting. It's an exciting time for this topic. And that's yeah. I think I just think as motorists, people see roadkill and they don't even give it a second thought. So having that article zoom out and make you think, oh, these are actually species within a population that have some importance on the landscape and. Um, here's why that's important. So I thought that was really cool. 
It's true. I think it's one of those things that's just such a everyday part of our occurrence that we don't think of it often in context of the bigger landscape. Right. And especially when you talk about those little guys, like you said, the amphibians and, and reptiles. And um, I know that down in Southern Nevada, we, we put in a lot of work for desert tortoise and we're working on a research project, the International Pulled Fund Study. And one of our components is helping to fund a, a study in California that's looking at a toad, which is utilizing a, a raised road approach for a toad to cross underneath the, the road. And it's, it's really like kind of a proof of concept on a U.S. Forest Service road. So it'll be really interesting to see what results come from that. So th there's a lot of stuff that happens at the smaller level that just isn't, we'll call it, isn't as appealing or charismatic as these big, you know, large species. So um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of neat things that are going on out there. Um, that's a, a, a semi-decent segue into um, infrastructure in the infrastructure plan being discussed in D.C. right now. Can you talk to us a little bit about that policy um, that's currently being discussed? Yeah, so this is super exciting. So the transportation bill in D.C., um, right now, it is the first time in U.S. history that they are actually considering uh, funding for wildlife crossings or associated projects um, in the transportation bill. And like I said, it's the first time in U.S. history. So it's super exciting for all of us that have been involved. Um, I was able to go to the House last um what was that march of 2020 right when the pandemic started kicking off yeah. and uh, talked to them about nevada and some of the successes we've had and um so that was really exciting to be kind of a part of that but you know it, it was up in the air and and every kind of draft and and edits we you know kind of crossing our fingers that it's going to make it through but in the end um we're we're still optimistic it's looking good that they're going to have um, I don't know what the final amount will be, obviously, because it's not finalized just yet to my knowledge, but it is going to be a competitive grant process. So a certain amount will be designated and those projects that are really have a high conservation concern. And I believe it's set up to really kind of um, help those that are pretty much ready to hit the ground um, will, you know, do this application process and be selected. So it, it's just a really great start for us to have designated funding within our transportation realm. So yeah, yeah just really great um, thing that we're all very excited about. Yeah, we're super excited about it too. And we've been following it pretty closely. Um, and if our listeners are interested, just, uh, um, yeah, we'll keep you posted, <laughs> but keep following us like you've been following us and we'll let you know how it's going. Awesome. Awesome. Um, I'm going to transition us into some more fun questions, but is there anything else on the topic um, that you want to share before we ask some fun questions? Yeah. So if you don't mind, um, there's a state level that just passed. Um, cool. If I could talk about please yeah yeah so for infrastructure policy um or any policy relating to wildlife we just had you know our legislative session here at the state and we had um what ended up being called ab 211 
and it's related to the Department of Wildlife and reviewing of subdivision maps. And they've always had an opportunity, the Department of Wildlife that is, to provide some uh, recommendations, we'll call it, when new developments are going in. But there was never really any way for them to enforce their recommendations. So this new bill um, is actually allowing them um, or, or putting a little bit more pressure on the planning agency to actually consider the potential impacts to wildlife and the habitat as part of the approval for any new developments. So that's a really big deal for Nevada um, and the Department of Wildlife. And then we work so closely with the Department of Wildlife. We have a great partnership with them. And so when we have concerns with some of these developments that might go in, um, it'll be a great opportunity for NDOT to also speak up and um, provide input through the Department of Wildlife, obviously, and see if um, there are goals overlap with their goals and, and they might be able to include that in their recommendations as well. So I think it's just a really great, great thing for the Nevada legislature to push forward. Yeah, those both sound amazing. Keep us posted on those too, please. <laughs> yeah. Howdy, Artemis listeners. This is Aaron Kindle from NWF Outdoors. We know you love awesome conservation conversations. That's why we want to invite you to check out the NWF Outdoors podcast, where we dive deep into the issues, people, and places that showcase the best of the sporting conservation lifestyle. Guests include leaders, luminaries, and decision makers who define conservation and work tirelessly for fish and wildlife. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts and at nwfoutdoors.org. So one of wild, wildlife cams are one of my favorite things in the world. I think they're just fun to, to get a glimpse at what's happening when we're not there. What's one of the most interesting things you've seen on a wildlife camera at a crossing? So this is kind of a fun fact for us is we actually documented the first pronghorn to ever cross an overpass in the U.S. And that was back in July of 2012. Um, now, Wyoming has put in their overpass, um, I think it's Trapper's Point, and it's gotten really great PR, and they've done an amazing job, and literally have <laughs> got thousands of, of crossings, so they've totally blown us out of the water, which is, which is awesome and amazing, but I like to pat us on the back that we got the first one ever documented, so that was fun for us. Um, We've also had red fox, which may not seem impressive to other people, but we don't have a whole lot of red fox here in Nevada. So when I saw that, I got really excited. Um, and then the other one that kind of comes to mind is we, we documented um, a pair of owls, great horned owls, hunting mice on the oh, overpass. So see? yeah, I, I, yeah, it was kind of neat. I, I'm assuming it was fairly early in the process. So I'm assuming the mice were on the, the overpass pulling seed out from our, our seeding efforts. And um, the, the owls came in the, to predate on the, the, the mice. But I just thought that was really fascinating to document this predation event. Yeah, that's cool. What do you want to catch in a crossing that you haven't yet? So uh, Nevada is recently started to see a small population of moose coming in down from Idaho. And um, it's been over the last 10 or so years. Wow. And we did capture or we observed a moose 
uh, about a mile north of uh, one of our structures, our big structure at uh, Pequot Summit on I-80. I was with one of the biologists from Department of Wildlife, and she had seen it and took me over to see it. So it was really cool. So I would love to see a moose on one of our structures. Again, that's something that maybe other states see pretty frequently, but it's pretty rare here for Nevada. Um, obviously a wolverine, you know, we have them that truck through on very rare occasions. So that would be a pretty awesome find. But um, And then I'm a huge fan of the large predators and uh, I, I love mountain lions. It's just, I'm just fascinated by them. And um, we still haven't caught any of them on our structures. So uh, yeah, it would be great for us to, for me at least, to to catch one of them on there. So whose job is it? Who gets to look at all the wildlife crossing cameras? Well, so it just depends on on who's doing what at the time. So, and I do have to take it back. We have caught mountain lion down in Boulder City Bypass. So we, uh, and you asked whose job is it? Down in Southern Nevada, we did a big project. Um, Boulder City Bypass, it was a brand new roadway going through Virgin Territory, and there was a big, pop, or there is a big population of bighorn sheep. And so we partnered with the Arizona Game and Fish um, to help us do some of the po uh, monitoring, both pre, um, during, and post-construction. And so they're, they're still working with us, monitoring, doing all this camera data, so they're focused on that project. Um, for our other projects, we've done some in-house, we've done some through the universities, we've done some with contractors. It just really depends on what we're up to at the time, who we're working with, and um, how we can get it done. So, yeah, it, it just varies. So, my, my uh, graduate work was just looking at um, um, over a million photos to uh, come up with a bunch of different uh, questions or, or, or answers to the questions that I had. So, yeah, it, it's fun. That's awesome. Becca, do you have any questions? No, I've been holding back a sneeze for like the last minute and a half. <laughs> but I think I'm in the clear. <laughs> oh, that's funny. I know that feeling. Cool. Um, well, let's go on to hits and misses. This is our weekly our weekly closer. And the question is, what have you been aiming for? And how did it go? Becca, do you want to go first? Yeah, or do you need to wait sure. for that sneeze? <laughs> No, the season's gone now. I forced it away. Um, uh, I have a myth that I think a lot of hunters can um, relate to. We got our draw results back today in Idaho, and I didn't draw any tags. I put in for antelope, uh, mule deer, and elk. And I've put in for cow tags in the past that have like 98% draw odds, and I've always gotten those. And this year I decided to be a little riskier and it didn't pay off, but we have some incredible over-the-counter opportunities. So yeah. I'm like kind of bummed, but also at the same time, really excited to just focus on one or two over-the-counter tags and then have my whole bird season open to go hunting with my dog. So I guess it's like not really a miss, but well, it was yeah. kind of funny to see did not draw six times. <laughs> that, that hurts. That does, that hurts. <laughs> But good rebounding, good good positive mm -hmm. rebounding. I am still <laughs> yeah. waiting. Um, I didn't put in for any elk or deer tags. I'll just use the general over-the-counter tag because we're lucky in Montana to have a pretty generous option there. But I'm still waiting for my antelope tag draw. I, I don't know yet. Usually pretty crossed. good odds, right, in Montana? Well, 
um, we always apply in like far eastern Montana where it's the same. It's like an it's like a ninety five percent draw rate. So I'm not too concerned. But what if I'm the five percent? I mean, there's always that chance. <laughs> there's always that chance. We'll see what we yeah. Um, hopefully it'll if we do draw it'll be my sixth year there. I think so. It would be a big bummer if I had to break tradition. But and antelope is just so tasty as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Nova, what have you been aiming before? Why is this sentence so hard for me today? <laughs> <laughs> Feels like Friday, but it's not. What have you been aiming for and how did it go? So, you know, personally, um, I've been actually working on training my horse. Um, he's, he's still fairly young. Uh, I've been training him for like four years and it's still a, a process. <laughs> and, uh, Lately, we've been working on connection methods and just trying some new techniques that I hadn't used before. So that's been a lot of fun um, and interesting to see his reactions. And then um, the other thing I guess I could think about, you guys were you know, talking about some hunting, is this is the first year I took fishing up again in, in probably 25 years since I was a kid. Nice. So um, here I am in my early to mid 40s now um most women don't give their age away right but (laughs) (laughs) I'm also in my early to mid 40s (laughs) (laughs) so yeah it's my husband got into it last year during the pandemic and I thought to myself why am I not doing it so uh, I've just been so busy the last many years with school and work and I finally said, I'm going to do it. So yeah, we're going to go out again this weekend and and try a a lake we haven't uh, fished before. And um, so yeah, I'll let you know if it's a hit or a miss by next weekend. Sounds good. (laughs) What kind of fishing? Um, you know, we're, we're just doing, trying trout right now, really. Um, we seem to get a lot of, uh, bottom feeders, so sucker, but, um, primarily rainbow trout tends to be in the, the lakes that we have here. Very cool. And Becca, I felt you perk up when she said horses. Would you like to follow up on that? <laughs> How did you know, Marcia? My phone was on you. <laughs> I can oh. just feel it. Oh, no, Nova, I was going to ask you what kind of riding you do with your horse. I um, was really excited when I bought this property for the potential to have a horse at home, but then I got overwhelmed at the cost of everything, and I'm putting that on hold for a few more years. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I, I feel you on the cost. It's, it's definitely something that, that hurts every so often. But, um, you know, I, my ideal uh, future or my, my idea with my horse is uh, trail riding for the most part. And but I also wanted to do some just basic dressage. I have no desire whatsoever to do any sort of competition. I did that when I was young and I just it's not my realm. But um, I just think it's good for um, for just training in general and um, good for composition and composure and the mind as well, just, just going through that training. But unfortunately, I did send him to training for a couple months and um, he came up lame and we found out that he actually has some, some bad hawks and at a young age already. So he was just born with... Uh, some deficiencies back there so he will never be a a kind of a competitive or a horse that you can train on like that 
So that, that part's gonna be gone. So we're just gonna do just strict light trail writing is about all we're gonna ever be able to do together. And that's okay with me. So um, yeah, it'll be my- Yeah, really enjoyable. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, yeah, it, it's just a, a learning process, him and I, and, and uh, we're learning together. So it's, it's been fun. What's his name? Murray. Murray. It's a good name. Murray. Good he name. came with that name and, and he kind of reminds me of Bill Murray because he's kind of goofy in his personality. So I, I left it. <laughs> I was going to say, if you can just say his name after Bill Murray, that's never a bad thing. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. He, he's, he's a fun horse. He's what you call a, a leopard Appaloosa. So he's got these really impressive markings, real pretty. That's what suckered me into him. But he's been a handful. He's a, I, I never realized, but I guess everybody in the horse world knew that Appaloosas can be a handful. So I, I know now. <laughs> I was just thinking of all the Appaloosas I've known in my life and how all of them were a lot to deal with. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I just didn't know that. <laughs> I do now, but he's, he's my baby. So uh, he'll be with me for life. Yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. Um, well, my... Uh, I guess it's a hit. It, it's it's a total hit. I don't even know why I say guess. Um, I went fishing on a float trip on Sunday, and it was amazing. It was the first time I've been on a float trip in a couple of years, and we floated 10 miles down the Clark Fork River, and it was a little bit hot <laughs> and a lot slow. The fishing was super slow, um, but a day in the river is always a good day, so that was nice. And I caught, um, I caught one actual fish that was like well that's not that's let me rephrase that I caught one trout I caught two white fish and then I caught two more trout that were like the size of my thumb they were so small um, <laughs> but they were very ambitious in what they thought they could eat uh, but other, but that's it we for for 10 miles of floating um, I caught like four five fish it was really slow because it was uh it's getting hot and shallow around here. Yeah. Yeah, that's what uh, we're worried my, about. The first fish I ever caught on a fly rod was a white fish, so nice. I can't let myself bash them because they're the ones that got me hooked on fly fishing. <laughs> yes, literally. Um, I, 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 if I had a quarter for every time I made that joke, <laughs> I would be rich. <laughs> but, um, and, and my aunt makes a really delicious white fish dip, so... I got nothing against whitefish either. Um, a friend of mine has started calling them silver trout. Nice. I like it. Yep, it works for me. Oh, Nova, thank you so much for joining us. I, I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, and I hope our listeners do too. I think it's, it's awesome to go into a deep dive like this on something that we all um, encounter in our lives fairly regularly, I think. So thank you for yeah, being here. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. And, and I, I hope that uh, people enjoy it as well. And it's something that I love talking about. And uh, yeah, anytime. Awesome. All right. For our listeners, thanks so much for joining us today. Until next week, be bold, stay curious and get outside. And I'm going to add stay cool. It's hot out there.
Thank you.